The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Monday edition of the PFT PM Podcast. We have a 25-minute conversation coming up with Dwight Freeney, the former NFL sack master. He was with the Colts through 2012, then played for several different teams, retired after the 2017 season. And good conversation with him. Scouting combine stuff, Colts memories, Tony Dungy, Peyton Manning, et cetera, et cetera. That's all coming up. I'm going to babble a little bit about some of the things happening in the NFL. Then I'll answer some of your questions. Only the best, though. When you got 25 minutes with a guest, that's less time than I get to talk. So... Or less time that I have to talk, which is it? I like talking. It's been a couple of days since we've done this. Plenty of things to talk about. Let's go over some of the headlines in the NFL since PFT Live signed off earlier this morning. One of the first things I see when I look at profootballtalk.com, Drew Locke will be throwing at the scouting combine. You know my position on this by now. Let me just summarize it. I don't care if guys throw or don't throw at the scouting combine. It's their choice. And I hate it when people in the media try to shame them into throwing because the media wants to be entertained. The media wants to have something to write about. The media wants to have something to talk about. NFL media wants to have something to broadcast into all of the homes of the people who will be choosing to watch it. Let these kids decide what they are going to do based upon what it is that is in their best interest. And if it's not in their best interest to throw, then don't throw. One of the big hesitations has always been you're jammed into this situation where you don't know any of the receivers and maybe you end up looking bad because it's a receiver who doesn't run the right route at the right time and it looks like you overthrew him and it's just not worth the risk and let's defer all of it to the pro day workout. So if you choose to throw, great. If you choose not to throw, great. I will never shame a guy or suggest that a guy should throw when he shouldn't. The only thing I've pointed out is that Kyler Murray, when he says two weeks ago in his statement committing to the NFL that he eagerly awaits the opportunity to prove to the decision makers that he's the franchise quarterback in the draft and he gets an opportunity and he may not do it, I just have a hard time believing that what he said in the initial statement is 100% complete and truthful and written by him. It was written, but not by him lawsuit filed against the alliance of american football a guy named robert vanich sued the aaf and founder charlie ebersalt he's entitled to 50 percent ownership of the league because it was his idea once his name is part of the league's history the aaf says mr vanich's claim is without merit there was never any agreement oral or written between mr vanich and mr ebersalt relating to the alliance we remain focused solely on a historic inaugural season when each weekend over 400 players get an opportunity to showcase their talents and fulfill their dreams of playing professional football boy that's really taking a negative and spinning it into a positive isn't it throwing on at the end the pitch to tune in and watch the AAF. Look, I don't know anything about the lawsuit. Haven't seen the lawsuit. It's enough to get the AAF to respond to it. Vantage says that he had a handshake agreement with Charlie Ebersol, co-founder of the AAF. And I'm sure he talked to plenty of people, and maybe he talked to some people who were interested in getting involved, and maybe at the end of the day, people who wanted to get involved didn't get a chance to get involved, and now here we are. I wonder whether or not Tom Dundon who has committed $250 million to the AAF, was aware of this possible lawsuit at the time that he signed on. And I wonder whether or not this possible lawsuit, this actual lawsuit, this actual claim, this liability that the AAF now has, whether that will in any way cause Dundon to look at the AAF differently. I don't know. See, here's the thing. And we talked about this, I think, last week when this all came up. Usually when you're talking about a major financial transaction... There are weeks of what they call due diligence. And I I do remember talking about this where accountants and lawyers and people come in and they pour over the books and they get to know the assets, the liabilities. They, They come up with a picture of the business that is very detailed and nuanced and allows you to understand whether or not you're going to have a reasonable chance to get a return on your investment. 
This all happened fairly quickly for Dundon a couple of weeks ago. And my guess is, based upon things I've seen reported and things that I just believe are commonsensical, my guess is he does have protections built into this thing because he didn't have the opportunity to engage in the normal due diligence process that would precede a transaction of this magnitude. So this may look like a minor deal. This may just be like a pimple on the lower side of your back, not all that far from your butt, but it's the kind of thing that can become infected and morph into a major problem for the AAF. So it's something to pay attention to. The fact that they've issued this statement tells me that that they are paying attention to it. They are taking it seriously, even if they view that it has no merit. The Ravens have decided that Michael Crabtree has no place in their lineup going forward. The veteran receiver, a top 10 draft pick back in 2010, I believe it was. Was that the Des Bryant year that Michael Crabtree? No, maybe it was nine. It was the year that Darius Hayward Bay was a top 10 pick as well. Either way, Michael Crabtree, after all those years in San Francisco, he's bounced around the league some with the Raiders in 17, now the Ravens in 18, and he will be released. Three-year, $21 million deal during the 2018 offseason due to make $5 million in base salary and count $9.3 million against the cap. Instead, $4.7 million in dead money now. But, uh, oh, wait a minute. If they, okay, if they, it looks like what they're going to do is make him a post June one release. So, uh, I, I have to study this a little more carefully and understand exactly what's going on here, but, um, either way he's out and, um, we'll see where he lands. We'll see if someone pounces on him. And remember it was last year that he became available and the Ravens locked onto him before Des Bryant was released. And there was a thought that if he had been available at the same time that uh, Crabtree was available, that the Ravens would have gone with Des Bryant instead of Michael Crabtree. Continuing to scan through the news of the day, probable cause affidavit released in the charges against Patriots owner Robert Kraft. Two counts of solicitation of prostitution, back-to-back days, January 19, January 20. I'll defer any discussion of the sordid details to the document itself. Remember, it is allegations, but if this stuff's on video, I don't know how you mount a vigorous defense to it. Now, if he wants, he's got the money. I'm sure that there is something that was done at some point in this process that would justify an argument to be made that evidence gets pitched or causes or charges get dismissed there's no probable cause whatever the case may be if you're willing to pay you can get a lawyer who is good enough to make an argument that possibly will stick if that's what you want to do if you want to go full-blown oj simpson style dream team on this you potentially beat it back and you end up being exonerated potentially maybe even the expenditure of money still doesn't put you in a position where you can avoid it but you know something i i understand that there are certain privacy rights that probable cause can overcome, but the, I, the idea that they, they actually taped the, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I guess that's the conclusive proof that there was something that happened that shouldn't have happened, but there's something unseemly about setting up a camera to record uh, sexual activity in an effort to, to I, but again, I look, I'm assuming that they believe they were within their legal rights to do it. My point is, if Bob Kraft decides he wants to spend as much as it takes to fight this, that would be one of the first things I would look at. Are there any constitutional limitations? Is there anything under Florida law that was compromised here? Is there anything in the, you know, the identification process, the chain of command, anything, anything that you could get? If he wants to do that, then, uh, then, uh, then he can. The question is, how aggressively does he push it? And... I think that is going to be something that that has a lot of factors that, that will influence the final decision. There's going to be a PR component to it. Do you want to come off as somebody who is trying too hard to prove that you didn't do something that the objective evidence seems to suggest you did? Court of public opinion, always different from the court of law. Does the court of public opinion become swayed if there is an aggressive defense that's mounted to this? I don't know. 
will there be pressure from the NFL to just make this go away quickly? To not have this hanging over the league, hanging over the Patriots, hanging over Kraft for a period of months or years. All remains to be determined. And really, he can avoid this for the rest of his life if he just doesn't return to Florida. Now, I don't know how practical that is. I don't know how often he goes to Florida. But that is a way to to get around it. And uh, these are all things that go into the broader stew that that ultimately results in a decision on how to properly handle it. But what we do, what we see, what occurs, what unfolds, what transpires as it relates to the criminal action, that is something that Kraft and the Patriots are going to have to look at and understand how that may relate to what the NFL does. And I think that one thing that Kraft will do is get an idea of what the league's reaction will be what the league may prefer that he do. Remember with, and, and maybe he won't trust whatever he thinks could result in, and again, I don't want to I don't want to boil this down to just deal-making, but remember with Deflategate, he thought that if he abandoned the team's effort to appeal the sanctions imposed upon the Patriots, that that would get Tom Brady a better bargain, better treatment, no suspension. So, number one, I don't know that he'll trust whatever his instincts may be telling him or whatever winking and nodding may be going on if he misreads it like he misread it four years ago. But that is one factor in all of this. What does he think the league wants him to do? And can he trust that if the league prefers that they just all go away, take responsibility for it, pay the fine, do whatever, jail time is highly unlikely. But if he, if he senses that the league wants him to handle it a certain way as it relates to the criminal justice system, how will that affect what the commissioner ultimately does? And the commissioner is in a tough spot here. And, and I said today on PFT Live that no matter what the commissioner does, there's going to be people who think he didn't do enough. There's going to be people who think he did too much. There's no good way out of this for the commissioner. And I think the best outcome would be to negotiate some sort of punishment that Kraft imposes on himself. So the commissioner isn't the one dropping the gavel. That Kraft says, this is what I'm going to do. And the commissioner says, okay, that is sufficient. And then no one will complain that it was too lenient or it was too stringent. And frankly, if that's where you're going to go, then Kraft probably needs to impose something on himself more stringent than what we would think. Whatever we would think would be reasonable. Like if we think a six-game suspension is reasonable because that's what happened with Jim Irsay, and I'm just throwing numbers out here. Let's say, okay, what happened with Jim Irsay operating a vehicle while under the influence, $500,000 fine, six-game suspension. If we think that's reasonable for Kraft, then maybe he needs to double it. Maybe he needs a 12-game suspension to impose that on himself to kind of help the commissioner out of this tough spot. And, and that's what, look, I'm not saying what Kraft should or shouldn't do, but that's what I think some owners would would choose to do. Hey, I put the commissioner in a really tough spot here. He's got to figure out how to discipline me and he's going to get criticized no matter what he does. How about I suggest something that is more than what we reasonably think the punishment should be. The commissioner signs off on it and he doesn't get criticized for going too easy on me. I have imposed something on myself that is stringent enough that, hey, people may think it's too much, but I'm choosing to do this. So how can they be upset with the league? That, that's just an idea for a way to properly navigate this minefield and come out of it with minimal damage to the Patriots, minimal damage to the NFL, and, and just move forward. If, if, if that's the way that this is handled, there's still a chance that Robert Kraft will fight this thing tooth and nail. That they'll get together and they'll decide, hey, this is how we're going to do it. We are going to fight, we are going to fight, we are going to fight, and we're going to secure exoneration, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, however long it takes, I didn't do this, and we're going to prove it. And what was the initial reaction? What was the initial statement? Categorical denial. So all we've seen and heard so far from the Patriots and Kraft would suggest that he's not going to give in, that he is going to fight it. And maybe that's the right approach, maybe it isn't. But remember this, under the personal conduct policy, the league will still do its own investigation once the criminal process ends. So it's not over, even if it... uh, it is something that, uh, you know, he wins in a court of law.
the NFL court, the court of Roger Goodell, is still going to be out there. And people will be watching because there's this belief that there's a double standard. And really, there is. There should be a double standard. The standard should be that owners get even stronger punishment than players because that's written on the face of the personal conduct policy. Oh, by the way, I've seen another reference to a comment being made from authorities in Florida that they don't know what the hell Shefty's talking about when he says there's a bigger name than Kraft out there. Because there are other names that supposedly are going to come out, but if there are, they don't know about it. And look, they set this operation up. The operation is now over because the the day spas in question have been shut down. So I think they're aware of the universe of potential criminal defendants for soliciting prostitution. So I, I, look, I don't know where Shefty got his info. I still don't know why he would blurt that out in lieu of just chasing down the name. Because once you tell the world there's a bigger name out there, you're inviting every other reporter in a very competitive business, a, a business driven by being first. You're telling them all, hey, you know what? I had a head start, but I'm voluntarily giving it up. I am sacrificing the head start that I have earned by my connections, by my relationships, by just dumb luck. Who knows? But he traded in the head start to have that one little nugget that came out on Friday that kind of changed the topic for a little bit, changed the subject for a little bit, took some of the heat off of Kraft. And look, I'll call it like it is because I've heard others speculate openly about this. There's thought that maybe... Shefty's just doing craft a favor by turning the page on Friday and putting his name out there. I heard my buddy Big Cat talking about that today on Pardon My Take. And look, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it doesn't make sense to me that you would tell the world about your head start instead of just taking full advantage of your head start and finding out who the bigger name is, whether it's Schefter or someone else at ESPN. Because it really isn't, if it's not a football name, it's really not Schefter's turf. So hand off the lead to, I don't know, somebody from outside the lines. They've got competent people there who can investigate. So instead of cashing that chip for whatever the motivation and playing that card, turning that card over for the world to see, team player maybe keeps it to himself and, or at least keeps it within the walls of ESPN and shares the information with someone with E60 or outside the lines. And then they, they chase it down and figure out what the bigger name is. All right, what else is happening in the national... That's probably the biggest thing. That's probably a good spot for me to just stop talking, at least for a few minutes. At least just me talking, because I had a chance earlier today to talk to a guy who was the 11th overall pick way back in 2002. And my God, this is one of those moments where I feel really old, because I had PFT up and running. It was the first draft that we ever had at profootballtalk.com and I remember having stories about this guy Dwight Freeney about how he's so small and they're thinking that he's just not going to make it in the NFL and how's this guy ever going to get it done and he got it done Uh, unlike many have ever done it unlike most have ever done it 18th all time on the sack list a case for Canton quite possibly that may come up in the interview that is to follow that will come up along with plenty of other things. Here's our conversation from earlier today with former NFL pass rusher Dwight Freeney. All right, as we get closer and closer to the 2019 draft, here's a guy who was the 11th overall pick back in 2002, went on to have a career that included seven Pro Bowl appearances, three-time All-Pro, and he is defensive end Dwight Freeney. Dwight, welcome to the program. How are you, pal? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm going to your old stomping grounds of Indianapolis later this week for the scouting combine. When I use the term scouting combine, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Oh, man. Well, you know what? That type of, I don't know, type of event there is it's it's just like something that you've never experienced before as a player. You know, I mean, I don't even know. What, it's like It's kind of like you go out there and it's like a meat market. It's like a cattle just walking up. Everybody has, you know, they're off a whole bunch of looking at each guy's body type, you know. So it's literally a meat market. Think of animals walking in into, you know, and saying, oh, I want this cow. I want this bull. You look at the definition of this guy's shoulders, you know, and then you go out there and you see how fast you can run and how how much weight you can push and how tall, how, how high you can jump. You know, it's 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 something else. There's nothing else like it, you know, in the world. 
And, you know, the NFL acts like the thing is some sort of an honor for the players involved. I don't know that honor is the word I would use. It feels like it's dehumanizing. Well, I think there are two sides to that. I think, you know, honor would be, you know, maybe for the guys who weren't supposed to go or maybe, you know, because I, I guess they only take a certain amount of guys, you know, so I think the lower tier guys, um, yes, a hundred percent is more of an honor for those guys, you know, because they, you know, they didn't know if they were going to be able to go or not. So, you know, this is a chance where they can display, you know, their athleticism and, and, you know, their body type and all that. But that being said, there is a part of that thing where it's kind of like, man, <laughs> what do you guys want me to do? You know, just walk on the stage and just, I guess it's kind of like, you know, maybe bodybuilders, you know, they do that for what they do in their profession. They take it off and they're actually trying to show it off. You know, us players, and, and if I remember from a college, I was kind of like, wow, shocked. Like, okay, you guys want me to walk up here, take my shirt off, and you guys are just going to stare at my body and say, yeah, this guy's body type is perfect. And I don't think that has a lot to do with actually making plays. You know, it comes down to what you do on the field. Um, but I do understand from their side of it that there has to be some type of process, you know, that goes beyond just the field. I can I can get that, you know, how how, how much weight you can lift, how how high you can jump and, and speed and stuff like that. You know, I think that now, I don't know how what actually happens. It's been obviously a long time since I've been there, so I don't know if things have changed. But when I was there, it was kind of you know, nowhere. One of the things that gets discussed every year, some of the crazy stories that will emerge from the meetings that teams privately have with the players. Is there anything you remember all these years later where you're like, what the hell are they asking me? Or just some crazy story of anything that came up when, when you were meeting with individual teams in Indianapolis? Yeah, you know, there's always that. There's always those moments to where it's so the questioning um, is just kind of weird and off. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, you, you, you kind of wonder where are you guys getting this question? It's not even football related. You know, I think I was meeting with the Cleveland Browns at one point um, and uh, maybe one of the former head coaches from Miami Hurricanes. I forgot his name right now, but yeah, I think he was one of the head coaches, whatever. And they were just drilling me on questions about non-related. I mean, things that kind of like, you know, uh, why do you play football? And, and, and I play football to maybe support my family and my friend. Well, you don't play to win a Super Bowl? Is that not, that's not why you play? <laughs> it was kind of like, whoa, wait, hey, I didn't say that. I just, one of the reasons why I play is just, you know, hey, I want to uh, achieve great things. This is a dream of mine. Well, you're not a team guy. You don't care about the team. Well, I didn't say that. We didn't get to that point yet. So those are the type of things that happen, you know, where they, they really grill you, they really drill you. And they're trying to maybe some guys break you mentally. Was there a time during that pre-draft process when you're visiting different teams, hearing from different teams, hearing different things that are happening as the draft approaches? Was there a point where you realized, hey, you know what? The Colts may be the team that ends up taking me. No, funny. No idea. They did say that I could be, you know, the range was from the 11th pick to the 30th pick. You know, I knew nothing about Indianapolis. I, you know, I was a Giants fan growing up. I really didn't hear much about Indianapolis being that pick, you know, for me. You know, it was the Raiders, you know, different thing with Al Davis being a Syracuse grad. He loves Syracuse guys. There's certainly a lot of that, you know. Um, But, you know, there was a little bit of the Bears. But I didn't hear anything from Indy. So when I got picked... The 11th pick, I was completely shocked and stunned. You know, one of the things I remember vividly about you coming into the NFL, there was this narrative that he's too small, all you have to do is run the ball right at him, and you'll put him in the front row of the state. How, how much of that stuff bugged you when you heard people say that you weren't big enough to play in the NFL? Well, you know, you use that as a, you know, a chip on your shoulder, something to fuel your fire. You know, um, for me, it has always been a part of – of uh, things that really just motivated me, you know, um, 
there hadn't been a lot of guys I can understand from their perspective. There hadn't been a, guy, a lot of guys before me that was proven that they could do it. So I, I, I get it. They had to come out there and make those statements, you know, but me as an individual, you can, you can measure your height, you can measure your speed, but you can't measure your heart, you know? And I knew that, you know, I had a tremendous amount of heart. I also knew that I had great technique and fundamentals, you know, and I also had natural leverage, you know, and so for me is if I'm lower than the guy that's blocking me already and I have great technique, it doesn't matter if he happens to be three inches taller than me, you know, and I always, use the analogy, what am I doing? Am I sitting here trying to grab rebounds and block shots here? Now, if I'm trying to do that, then I get it. <laughs> but I'm not trying to do that. So, therefore, I think having natural leverage, um, being a little bit closer to the ground where I can get underneath the guy's shoulder pads, you know, worked in my benefit. It wasn't a detriment. I always say that we never know what guys are going to do when they get to the NFL, until they get to the NFL and get out there and play on the field with other NFL players and, and really prove they can compete with that level of athlete. For you, when was the moment on an NFL field when you knew, I can do this? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have right now thinking about all of what I just went out and did my job, you know, and I went out there and worked hard. You know, I was blessed to have a guy like Tony Dunch be my head coach. And, you know, you get, you get lost in practice. You go out there and you just, you, you, you work as hard as you possibly can, you know, and I was blessed going against, you know, one of the best left tackles in the league, Tart Glenn, um, where he definitely, you know, you, you talk about, you know, games, but my practices, Going against Tarek Glenn as a rookie, you know, those those things, for one, was painful because his arms were like the size of my legs. And and he and when he hits you, you, know, you felt it in all the bones and joints in your whole entire body. So there would be no better test of my game, my gameplay or me going and getting prepared for a game than what would be in practice. So I got lost in the whole practice getting ready in practice. So for me, I guess a revelation is if I can beat Tarek Glenn in practice, then I can beat anybody. And and that's kind of what I took it. You mentioned Coach Dungey. I've been working with him for a while now at NBC, and I get to observe him. I get to be around him. That guy's demeanor is so calm, so steady, and you see so many coaches that are fire and brimstone, rant and rave. Why does it work for Dungey that he is so measured and even keeled? How does that get through to football players who are used to somebody who's more likely to rant and rave? Well, I mean, I think, you know, for one, it's natural for him. He's not pretending. This is who he is. You know, um, he walks the walk, you know, and talks the talk. That's kind of how he is. And, you know, you hear the stories of it. And when you see it, it's kind of like, you know, you're around him and you're not feeling, you know, you feel the head coach vibe, obviously, but you more feel like, you know, father figure, you know, who I would like to be as a guy, a man, you know, that type of thing, which goes beyond football. You know, so now all of a sudden, you know, you got that guy who's yelling and screaming, you know, you might get motivated and play for that guy as well. And I'm not, I, I have had different levels of coaches, different styles of coaches, and every style, you know, is different and there's nothing wrong with them. You know, what, but the way that Dungey did it was very unique to where as though you can go on that football field and you can miss a play or a tackle and you feel bad, you let your head coach down, you know, and that type of feeling, you know, um, it's unmatched. You know, it's funny just being around him and he's not preachy. He's not judgmental. He doesn't come at you and say what you need to do. He just has this cloud around him where you want to be better. You know, I don't know what it is, but just being around him makes you choose to make the right decisions and choose to do the right things and choose to be a better person. It's kind of, I don't, I'm having a hard time explaining it, but it's just I just yeah. feel like that's the vibe that comes off of him naturally. Yeah, exactly. You kind of you kind of hit him on the head without hitting him in the head. It's kind of like you just being around him. You know, you just feel like you know what I don't want to let him down. You know, and he's not putting himself on you. It's not like he's 
saying you have to be this way or you're not going to be, you know, or you're a bad person or anything like that. You know, you just kind of see how he carries himself and you have so much respect for the guy. It's kind of like your father, your parent, your parent, you know, your father, you know, you want to make sure you're always doing right. At least my dad, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and that's kind of what he includes. It, and it's that type of infectious type of good vibes that you get also translates into great gameplay. Okay, 40 years from now, when your grandkids want to know your best story about Tony Dungy, what's your absolute best story that you can tell about your time with him? Oh, I don't know, man. There's just too many stories, man. I mean, but the thing is, it's just kind of, you know, it's like, I, I mean, I remember meetings, you know, and, and he's like, not going to be yelling and screaming, but he tells you exactly how he feels. You know, he just says, hey, guys, you know, you hear these stories about fining and fines and, and oh, gosh, as soon as you get to the NFL, they're going to fine you for everything, you know. And I just remember being in the meeting and Coach Dungeon was like, hey, guys, I'm not a big fine guy. You know, so, you know, just want you to know, you know, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, but you're not going to be here if you do those things. <laughs> we just kind of like... Oh, great. Uh, how do I take that? Uh, I prefer to get fined. No, please don't. You know, it's, so it's, like, it's, like, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's like he's not going to fine you, but he's treating everybody like men and just saying, hey, just, just keeping it real. Like, hey, I'm not a big fine guy. You're just not going to be here. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. All right. You know, and enough said. That's all we had to hear, okay? So, in the end, I think, you know, things like that, moments like that, kind of really show people that, you know, there are different ways to do things. It isn't just one way, and, and especially in the world of where we lived, where it was all about screaming and yelling and cursing. He did none of that. And he had just as much respect and from the guys in the fact that the matter is more respect because of how he just walked walk and talked to One of the all-time great Saturday Night Live skits has Peyton Manning with a bunch of kids on a football field, sending them to the Port of John mm-hmm. and yelling and screaming at them. What was Peyton Manning really like on an NFL practice field? Oh, I mean, Peyton, Peyton was great. You know, um, the, you know he was buried into uh, his craft and what he needed to do to get that offense moving and going, you know, and he was all about the details and uh, he wasn't a screamer. You know, I mean, there, you know, of course there's always moments where you get on a guy for not running, running a right route or something like that. And sometimes he'll make a bad throw and, you know, he is, he was out, that was on me, you know? So in the end, you know, I think, he was just focused so much on getting that offense, his offense, going the way that he would like it to be going in a way of routes and the pace and the tempo. You know, his practice was like the game. It was no different from, from that standpoint. You know, you see him in practice, he's taking it just as seriously, you know, as, as if it was a game. 2018 was your first year out of football in a very long time. What didn't you miss about the game? Oh, it's easy. Monday through Saturday. (laughs) 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 Sundays I can do for free. Monday through Saturday, man. No, it's you know what it is. It's just the grind of it. You know, this you're putting your people don't realize that you can get hurt in practice almost almost as easy as you can get hurt in a game. And just because you're not getting tackled, the older you get, it could be turning the corner the wrong way. It could be the way the guy pushed on you, and all of a sudden. You know, the worst feeling in the world is getting hurt on a Thursday or Friday, and you got a game on Sunday. So, I mean, I, I joke when we say Monday through Saturday. It's really kind of like, look, if I want to get hurt, I want to get hurt on Sunday, not Monday through Saturday. Did anyone call you last year at any point and say, hey, Dwight, you got uh, 15 snaps a game for us? <laughs> no. No, I, you know what? I, I probably got a, a couple calls, and I, I just pushed decline. <laughs> you know, but you know, I got actually, you know, some some uh, interesting calls. You know, maybe doing some coaching stuff. And you know, the thing is, I hadn't been a, you know, I hadn't been away from the game enough to do that yet. You know, um, I want to kind of see what 
the other side of the coin is and what, uh, you know, life outside of football for a second is about, you know, and so that's kind of what it is, you know, and like I said, I dedicated myself 16 years playing NFL football, you know, and now it's a young man's game. It always has been and always will be. So, you know, for me, I just say, you know what, I could go come back and do it another time and do it another year, but you know what, it's all good. Let them have it. <laughs> You officially retired as a Colt, but you last played for Indianapolis in 2012. Are you a Colts fan moving forward? Is that a team you paid attention to last year? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, that's you know that's where the you know, I guess the golden years of my career. That's where it was. You know, that's me, Robert Mathis. You know, uh, coming off the edges. You know, Gary Brackett and Bob Sanders. You know, um, winning that Super Bowl, man. So for us. You know, and for me, that's that's the team that you want to root on. You know, that's where we left our mark, or I left our, my mark. The big, you know, the biggest mark was there. So you always want to root on, you know, um, a team that you help. I guess become who they are today. In a, in a sense, you're part of their history. One of the teams you played for after leaving Indianapolis that kind of stands out to me, the Seahawks, because for as successful as they've been, it's kind of a different vibe. It's a different approach. It seems like a lot of unique personalities that maybe didn't always get on the same page. How different was playing for the Seahawks in the locker room around that team than it was during your time with the Colts? Well, I mean, I think it was different and just, you know, it's just a lot more freedom there, you know, a lot looser there. And, then, and, then, and like I said, there is nothing wrong with that. You know, it's just a different philosophy of how you want to um, manage the team, coach the team, how you want the guys to be. Um, I loved my time in Seattle, even though it was so short. You know, being at a team where it was such a defensive-minded atmosphere and team it was kind of like you know they were known for great defenses that crowd was so loud you know um and those are the things that as a football player as a defensive player you wanted to be a part of you know and i was there for a short period of time obviously those guys had some serious serious injury problems at linebacker and they had to, they weren't be able to line up and play football. They had to actually hire, get somebody from the practice, not even practice squad, off the street, basically, to come into the building to line up and play linebackers. So they had to make a move, you know. And I guess me being the oldest guy, like I said, it's a young man's game, they wanted to put me down for a week, you know. And so they had to release me with plans to re sign me. But I was. I was, I guess, you know, too big of a name at the at the time, and it was still being too successful in the field. I think I had three sacks and and whatever five games or whatever it was. You know, as soon as they put me on that that list, there I got scooped up by Detroit, so it was gone. But it was a great moment. It was a great time. Where did you learn your spin move? <laughs> that, that self that self taught man. That was I've never watched film never saw anybody do it, you know, and I'm sure guys maybe have done it prior to me, but maybe not at frequency of obviously of what I've been using it as, you know, it was more used as a counter move. Um, so to me, it was kind of like, Hey, you start at point A, you got to get to point B, you know? And if you think of, you know, back in the day, for me, it was all about and one mixtapes in basketball. I actually used to play basketball. So, you know, I used to get called for traveling all the time. When I used to do my drop step move, I would be a little power forward to throw me the ball, and I always make this nice little move and always be able to get to the rim, but I always get called for traveling. So there's no traveling in football. So I think one day in practice, you know, we were messing around, and, you know, I had to beat my offensive tackle, and, you know, and when mixtapes were big back in the day, so I started doing different things and spinning and getting to the quarterback or getting to the running back, and that's kind of where it started for me. 
You know, you had a special season late in your career in Arizona. I'm thinking about that Thursday night game where you came in, you sacked Teddy Bridgewater, forced a fumble to win the game. You seem to have developed that year. And in only 11 games, you had eight sacks. You had a very good sense of timing, of moment, of when to make that big play. Did you feel like you you could at that point, given where you were physically, where you were mentally based on all your experience, you knew when the moment was to really bring it and you could beat your guy when you had to the most? No, absolutely. That never ended. I, I mean, even 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 later in my career, that never ended. You know, Detroit, even if numbers were down, it never ended. I knew when to pull the trigger and do certain things, you know, and I think that's what happens when you get older is that your knowledge of the game and your intelligence goes up. Maybe your physical attributes or, you know, how fast, quick, or agile goes down. But I think when you know when you can do things before – it happens, you know, that's when you're at your best. And I know for me, knowing when I can do a move, how I set the guy up prior to what he's been seeing, you know, it made it uh, easier for me to go ahead and make the play. Now, obviously, I'm not getting the same reps when I got when I got older, you know, um, I wasn't like an everyday, every down player. So numbers will go down, attempts go down. So I had to really maximize the 10 times or 11 times per game that I had to be effective. So that being said, I had to hit home run balls, you know, and that's kind of what I got used to doing. You know, one of the things that impresses me, apart from everything you accomplished in the NFL, four and a half sacks in one game of Michael freaking Vick. How do you corral Mike Vick four and a half times in one game? Oh, my goodness. You know what? And I, I, I always see him and I always like, you know, I always laugh. My head. He had no chance in that. And, and I, what I mean by that it was I was so fat. I don't know what was going on with me that day in that game, but I was so quick <laughs> off the ball. The offensive tackle could – he was barely out of his stance, and I was on by him. So it really didn't give a chance for Mike to use his speed. So I kind of got him before he got started. But there was nothing he could have done because, I, I mean, I don't know, the carrier dome noise, adrenaline or something was going on, you know, uh, with me in that day where I was just unblockable. You know, and that's probably one of my – most favorite games that I played in from an individual standpoint. Uh, we lost the game, unfortunately, and doing some great things in the game. But, you know, just my individual standpoint, that was a great experience. Did you have specific games where you just felt like you knew when the ball was going to be snapped? Obviously, that's a huge advantage if you know when that ball's moving and you can get around the edge. But were there different teams where you could spot it or were there just days where you just felt like it all came together and you just knew when the ball was going to go? Well, it's a timing thing. It's kind of, you know, you know it, you feel it. That is kind of what you know what you train for and how you train. You know, I wasn't a guy who listened to snap count. You know, I was a guy who just went out and felt the game and, and how, you know, when and when it was going to be snapped, pre-snap reads, things of that nature. So I've always was really good at that. Do you think that uh, one of these days you're going to be standing up at a podium in Canton, giving the speech, pulling the sheet off the uh, the bronze bust and putting on the gold jacket? <laughs> well, you know what? I hope so. I think every player that plays really dreams to do that one day. You know, I feel like it's not up to me, though. You know, it's this is completely out of my hands. I've done whatever I have done in my career, and that's it. You know, and if I can ever be blessed to be a Hall of Famer one day, then that's going to be great. If if not, then hey, I had a great run, and that's what it is. Well, hey, Dwight, it was great talking to you. Hope to do it again sometime soon. Appreciate everything you did as an NFL player. Appreciate your insights. Wish you all the best. And, again, hope to talk to you down the road very soon. Hey, man, thanks for having me. You take care. Thanks again to Dwight Freeney for so much of his time. I looked down and realized we'd gone 25 minutes. Like, my God, I'm taking up this guy's entire afternoon. So thanks to him for so much of his time. Maybe we'll be talking to him again soon. And maybe you'll be stopping by O'Reilly Auto Parts soon. You don't want to take a chance of being stranded. You need to stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and get your battery tested now. Free of charge and one of many services available. If your battery needs to be replaced, the professional parts people will help you find the exact battery for your car 
or truck. I have a car and a truck, and I don't drive the car in the wintertime. And you know what? Should have tested my battery at O'Reilly Auto Parts because the battery... I, it was great. It was uh, nine days ago, and this is true, too. This isn't part of the read. We were, we were going out to dinner. The, the, some of the ladies in the family were getting together for dinner. And uh, so I said, all right, well, I'll ask my father-in-law to go get a steak. And a couple of the other guys in the family were going to meet us. And my father-in-law came over and we were going to take the truck. But it was dry. It was clear. It wasn't real cold. And all right, we'll pull the sheet off the the Alfa Romeo and and take that out for a spin. And, you know, it's, it's be fun for him. He got in, you know, let's take it for a ride. It has. It's been like four months since it's gotten out. And. We're ready to go, and I hit the button for the garage door to go up, and the garage door doesn't go, and it's like, well, eh, you know, maybe it has to be on. I couldn't remember. Maybe it has to be on for the garage door to go up. So I hit the button to start it, and it was just nothing, just nothing. It's like, oh, well, I guess we're not taking the Alfa Romeo tonight. So I, I should have had the battery tested, or maybe I should have run the car more than, you know, once every four months. Either way, the battery is dead. Make sure that doesn't happen to you. Get your battery tested at O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, time to answer some of your questions. Only the best today. What do we have here? PFTPM Posse. Did Demarcus Lawrence break the code on franchise tags by delaying shoulder surgery to force the deadline to be now? Well, other players that need offseason surgery and are likely to be tagged use the same strategy. Look, I don't know. If I missed something, has there been a development with Demarcus Lawrence or are we just relying upon what he said last week or what the report was last week that he's not going to get surgery until he gets a long-term deal that does force the timetable from July 15 until now because if he waits until July 15 when the deadline comes and goes for signing a long-term deal he's not going to be ready to go when or possibly not ready to go when the regular season begins definitely not ready for the start of training camp so it does kind of force the issue and the Cowboys have a tough decision to make because the franchise tag would be $20.56 million. That's the starting point for a long-term deal. I think it's going to take $45, $50 million fully guaranteed at signing to get DeMarcus Lawrence under contract and to get him to, to clean up that shoulder. And I think part of it, too, he doesn't want to take the risk of something happening with surgery. Right? You're going to have a Cowboys doctor work on your shoulder and maybe mess it up, and maybe you can't play for a year or two, worst-case scenario. Right? The Cowboys should be the one on the hook for that risk on the back end. So complicates the process, but smart for Lawrence to say, I'm not getting this surgery done until we figure out this contract situation. PFTPM Posse wants to send congratulations to the real Forno. He got out of the hospital and got engaged. That's a hell of a day. Got out of the hospital after serious surgery, life-threatening condition, perforated ulcer, and a twice-ruptured appendix. He was in the hospital for roughly a week, got out, got engaged. Congrats to Tyler. At J Ireland 80, can Kraft reach a financial agreement with the two female victims to not testify against him? I know it's on tape. It doesn't matter. I, I don't think testimony is going to be necessary. I don't think they have to subpoena the individuals in order to prove any of these cases. I, I, I don't think that these, these people who... If the allegations of human trafficking are true, and again, these aren't allegations against Kraft and the other men who allegedly used the services of the day spa, they'd be against the people who ran the day spa, but I don't think these victims of human trafficking, if this is the case, are going to have to come and testify in 50, 100, however many different cases that, that, that yes, we did these things. It's on tape, and I think they'll be able to prove who's who and what's what without having to put those folks on the witness stand. Next question. What do we have here? Tyler Fornis with the precedent of forcing Jerry Richardson to sell the Panthers. How would that impact the NFL's proceedings with Robert Kraft? Remember, they didn't force Jerry Richardson to sell the Panthers. Jerry Richardson was getting toward the end of the run anyway. He had no heirs that he was going to give the team to, so the time had come to sell it. Instead of selling it after he died, it was sold while he was still alive. He chose to do it instead of going through the process of seeing what the league would do to him. There's no guarantee the league was going to force him to sell. None whatsoever. And I'm not going to defend Jerry Richardson, but what happened in his case was he had people who had made claims against him. These weren't Stormy Daniels confidentiality agreements to buy silence. These were people who had claims that they could have made, would have made, and in some cases maybe did make. They were settled arm's length. You settle claims, and as part of it, just like what the NFL got from Colin Kaepernick, 
a confidentiality provision where none of this information will be shared with anyone. It's part of what you pay for when you settle actual or threatened legal claims. The problem is somebody blabbed. Somebody didn't respect the terms of the agreement that were signed that paid presumably a significant chunk of money to the person who either did sue or could have sued or threatened suit against the Panthers and or Jerry Richardson. And he didn't get the benefit of the bargain. He paid the money, but he didn't get the silence that went along with it. Now you could argue from a societal standpoint, this information needs to come out and action needed to be taken. At a minimum, the NFL should have been on notice of these things as they happened. So the NFL could have investigated them and taken any action that was necessary at the time. You know, maybe there's some league-based training or investigation that needed to be done. Maybe there were some personal conduct policy violations that could have been handled at the time. So that's part of the problem here, the fact that the Panthers didn't bother to tell the league what was going on. But when you look at these claims, again, these are not buying secrecy for the sake of buying secrecy. These are buying legal peace. And I'm stunned that there's been no other owner, no other team that's gotten ensnared in something like this in the 15 months since the Jerry Richardson case transpired. Because my first thought is, this is just the tip of the iceberg. That, you know, when you're in business, billion-dollar business, and you have a bunch of human beings who are in the same workplace every day, chances are somebody's going to say something at some point to someone that is going to cause a problem. And sometimes the boss is going to get caught up in that, either as someone who was involved in the statements or someone who knew about it and failed to take action, whatever the case may be. And, uh, you know, the thing about billionaires, they... They, uh, you know, they sometimes uh, feel like they can do and say whatever they want in the workplace because they run the workplace and that can create some problems. And I'm surprised there haven't been other teams in this same boat. But Jerry Richardson was not forced to sell. I Look, th there are provisions in the Constitution and bylaws where action can be taken to force a transfer of ownership under very extreme situations. I don't know that this comes anywhere close to activating that procedure. And even if it would, I don't know that there'd be enough support among ownership to create a standard that could turn around and be applied to them. See, the, the whole personal conduct policy was put in place to protect the shield from the players, but it was crafted in a way that it would appear to be fair that everybody is subject to these rules. They just assume that the owners are going to be more likely to comply with the rules than the players. But when the owners end up being allegedly or actually in some sort of a predicament, they, they have no choice but to apply the rules to them as well. But I'd be shocked, I'd be stunned if there is any type of effort to to remove I it just it it's I, I just don't see it happening. And it didn't happen with Jerry Richardson. All right, next question. Sergio D, couldn't Le'Veon Bell have taken the fourteen point five million from the Steelers, taken a personal insurance injury policy to cover the potential earnings from his next contract. That would have really maximized his earnings. Well but here's the problem. We talk about insurance policies all the time. There's two different kinds of insurance policies at play here. You've got the career-ending insurance, where if something happens to you that prevents you from ever playing again in the NFL, you cash in. Those are cheaper and those are easier to prove because you either had a career-ending injury or you didn't. The career-limiting injury is the one that becomes very expensive and it becomes very speculative and you end up buying a fight with the insurance company. Because let's say Le'Veon Bell had played last year for $14.5 million, and let's say he purchased a loss of value policy that would have ensured that he was going to get his $50 million fully guaranteed on the open market if he had some sort of an injury that made him less desirable to the teams out in the open market. So, And he has an injury. That isn't career-ending, but, you know, it's a broken ankle or a, you know, a meniscus tear, something that allows him to play, but that causes him to be viewed as damaged goods and gets him less money on the open market than he would have received. How do you bootstrap all that together and activate the policy? And the thing about insurance policies, any of you who have not read an insurance policy, I encourage you to do so or at least try to do so. There are so many little landmines buried in there. You know, the most important language of any insurance policy is the exclusions. The exclusions go on and on and on. And how you interpret that policy, how you interpret the exclusions, you buy insurance coverage. Hey, great, I got coverage against this. Yeah, but there are a lot of exceptions, and you need to know what they are. And that is, when you, this is high-stakes stuff here. And it's hard to prove it objectively, 
quantifiably and tangibly. So if there's any way to, to fudge, to fuzzy it up, to fight, insurance companies tend to do it. They uh, Look, I don't want to get into a whole anti-insurance company rant here, but here's how it works. Insurance companies have one commodity. They don't make things. Their commodity is money. They take money in and pay money out. And they make more money by taking more money in and paying as little as possible out. So they are wired to pay out as little as possible and to make it as difficult as possible when it's time to get your money, to get your coverage. Whether you are trying to get liability coverage from a policy someone else purchased or whether you're trying to get your own coverage from a policy that you purchased. Now, most states have laws against bad faith practices in settling insurance claims to create a real disincentive for insurance companies to just make it miserable, force you to get a lawyer, offer you 10 cents on the dollar just to get you to to take whatever they can get you to take and not fight and go away. It's just a battle of wills and they're willing to take as long as they need to. Every day they delay that payout is the money they keep in the bank and the interest they earn on that money. That is their commodity. So when you have a guy like Le'Veon Bell who forks over whatever he pays for this loss of value policy, they are not just going to start spitting out money when he says, hey, you know what, I didn't get my big contract. They're going to ask a million questions. They're going to hire their lawyers to to pour over that policy and over all the exclusions, and they're going to delay and delay and delay, and they're going to beat you down, and they're going to force you to sue. And even if at the end of the day, they pay out 100 cents on the dollar, the fact that they've delayed it for two or three years, that that's to their benefit because they earn interest on that money, and that money is their only commodity. That's how insurance companies work. I've seen it on both sides in litigation. It's how they work. There's an incentive. The nature of the business creates an incentive to pay as little as possible, and when you are going to pay, to pay as late as possible. The money is the commodity. Bring it in and don't pay it out. And that's the way it works. And there goes our our uh, universe of potential insurance sponsors. Can we just wipe out the last five minutes of the podcast? I'm kidding. Look, I, that's, that's what I believe. And some are more responsible than others, but some are very shaky and very shady, and they don't do business the right way because they, they give in to that temptation of greed and of doing everything they can to maximize their profits by not taking care of the people who have purchased insurance coverage. All right, should probably wrap this up soon. I keep forgetting about the 25 minutes with Dwight Freeney, but we're probably up to about an hour now. Let's see what else we have here. I mean, only the best quest- Excuse me, questions get answered today. Buffalo Guy 83, do you think the NFL CBA will push to get rid of the transition tag? No. The transition tag's not going anywhere. The franchise tag's not going anywhere. Here's why. The players will never give up what it takes to get the NFL to sacrifice these primary and significant tools for ensuring that players who otherwise are headed for the open market can be restricted from the open market. It's just not happening. Absolutely not happening. All right. Uh, What else do we have here? PFT Sponge. Is Peter King still a regular co-host on PFT Live with the new Sims and Big Cats setup? I think, yeah, Peter, Peter was on for an hour today. Look, we got Sims four days a week. We've got Big Cat one day a week. During the season, we had Peter one day a week. It may be that what we have when we get into the football season, we could have Sims and Big Cat together, and I dread that. We did that a couple of times. Oh, God, those bastards ganged up on me. But it could be Sims and Big Cat together for one day a week in Connecticut and me in West Virginia on the days we don't have Peter. But Peter's still part of the family. Peter's Football Morning in America every Monday. You see it at profootballtalk.com. And... Peter gave us kind of an extra bonus full hour today because uh, this is the last week with only three days of Sims. And we have Sims Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in Indianapolis, Big Cat Tuesday. And then starting next week, it's four days a week with Sims. On tour forever is Kyler Murray going on an all pasta and bread regimen to get his weight up before the combine. Uh, It's reported he's at something like 209 now. Peter said 206 earlier today. His agent insists that he's 205, that he'll at least be 200 when it's time to get on the scale. And yeah, maybe it's Michael Scott eating the fettuccine Alfredo at the start of the race, carbo-loading at the start of the race to do everything he can. I want to see what kind of a meal 
Kyler Murray eats right before he shows up uh, for the for the weigh-in. And whether he, uh, what, what would you take? I don't want to get too crass here, but the, you know, a medication that would cause you to stop doing something that would otherwise uh, unload ballast. That's as sensitive as I can be on that subject. All right, what else do we have here? Probably should wrap this up. Scrolling, scrolling. A red zone out. What drives Jerry Jones more? The quest for his own Super Bowl winning team or the ever-increasing value of his franchise? It's it's his own Super Bowl winning team. Because he knows that the value of the franchise is going to go up no matter what. It's gone up roughly 35 times since he purchased the team 30 years ago today. Tyler Fornes, what restaurant are you most looking forward to eating at this week in Indianapolis? You know, I'm kind of over St. Elmo's. I Well, we ate there last year. Sorry, St. Elmo's. It wasn't that good. And... You know, that, that whole, all the cocktail sauce on the shrimp will, like, clear out your sinuses. I mean, after you do that a few times, it's like, okay, been there, done that. But I was disappointed with the meal that we had there last year. Prime 47 is where we're going Thursday night. Got a table for eight. We're going to fill it up with uh, PFT staff and uh, friends of the operation. Um, Wednesday night is the perfunctory Ruth's Chris visit. I know there's, like, a Ruth's Chris in every major city. There's a reason why. Because it's freaking good, man. Because it's good. Stats is, is I think he's looking forward to Roos Chris Wednesday night, even though he has to eat with me Wednesday night. I think he's looking forward to that more than anything else because it is good. That's why they have them everywhere. It is good. So I don't know what Prime 47 is going to be. That's the place to go. We'll go there Thursday, Wednesday night, though, Roos Chris. And now that I've disclosed my coordinates for Wednesday and Thursday night, I'll make sure I have my security detail with me. Ah. Uh, at the real Forno, one more. I, I'm I'm leaning on at the real Forno because I'm happy he's out of the hospital and is happy for him that he's now engaged. Will the AAF's flex attempt bring in more viewers this Saturday? What they've done is they've moved the and I'm starting to link up coaches with teams. They've moved Orlando versus Salt Lake from the afternoon to the evening, and they've moved they've moved San Diego Memphis from the evening to the afternoon. Now this isn't just better time slot for TV viewing purposes. This is TV versus no TV because the afternoon game is streaming only. The evening game is on NFL Network. So they moved Steve Spurrier versus Dennis Erickson, first time they have ever met, to the evening. And they've moved Mike Martz versus Mike Singletary to the afternoon. And they'll go into the black hole of nothingness where God knows how many people watch that game on Saturday. I like it that you can pull up AAF.com and get a raw feed with no commentary. It's kind of fun to watch it that way. I was watching some of the games this weekend through the AAF.com raw feed, but that's why they're doing it. And I think it's going to happen again next weekend because as of right now, Birmingham is 3-0 and and Orlando is 3-0, and and they are due for the streaming-only black hole of Saturday afternoon. I bet they get moved to NFL Network as well next Saturday night. But that's how it goes the rest of the regular season. The Saturday afternoon game streaming only. Two of the games on NFL Network. One of the games on CBS Sports Network. CBS will not air another game until the championship, which is coming up uh, right about the time of the draft. I don't know if it's draft weekend or right before the draft, but right around the draft, the AAF championship game will be played. And I'm, I'm poking into some stuff I'm hearing about the differences between the AAF and the XFL. Interesting philosophical approach by the XFL versus what the AAF is trying to do. I'm going to be writing something about that. Maybe we'll talk about that more later in the week. I don't know when we do the next PFTPM. We'll probably throw something together Wednesday afternoon because we're going to have so many interviews at Indianapolis that day. That's the big car wash day where they're just going to be rolling in one after the other. So tomorrow I'll be traveling. So no PFTPM tomorrow. Wednesday will be heavy with interviews Thursday probably some of the same Friday I don't know what we're going to do I'm coming back on Friday afternoon but at a minimum check us out Wednesday for uh and I'll give you a quick idea of who we have lined up and and this is just the start it's not the end because a lot of times what happens is we will pick up others who just happen to be coming through that maybe we didn't have uh set ahead of time but Wednesday we're gonna have Pat McAfee on the set during PFT live But then we will have Broncos coach Vic Fangio, Titans coach Mike Vrabel, Cardinals coach Cliff Kingsbury. We're going to try to make time with Rick Spielman, the Vikings GM. Steelers GM Kevin Colbert will join us. Jaguars GM Dave Caldwell. Buccaneers coach Bruce Arians. 
Eagles Executive VP of Football Operations, Howie Roseman. We've penciled in Thomas Dimitrov for the afternoon. He is the Falcons GM entering year 12. We had him at the Super Bowl. Looking forward to talking to him again in person. Matt Nagy, the Bears coach, coach of the year. Matt LaFleur, the new Packers coach. Bill O'Brien, the Texans coach. And then we wrap up Wednesday with Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers coach. So Wednesday, going to be a busy day. Thursday, Rams coach Sean McVay, Chargers coach Anthony Lynn, maybe Rams GM Les Snead, Brett Veach, the guy who found Patrick Mahomes, maybe Pete Carroll, and also John Lynch, the 49ers GM. Chris Ballard is going to join us live. He's the Colts GM. He'll join us Friday live. So it's an ambitious week, and it's only going to get more ambitious as we add more names. So looking forward to that. Thanks for some of your time. As always, check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. PFT Live tomorrow with Big Cat. Have a great day. We will talk again soon. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.